She explains how our gut instinct is the result of our brains automatically processing information around us, where our senses take in 11 million bits of information per second, but can only consciously process about 50 bits of those information. That's 50 bits of the 11 million bits of information we receive per second. Welcome to Foreign Concepts, a podcast discussing cultural identity, race and representation from my point of view as a British East Asian of Chinese descent. Today's episode is on East Asian stereotypes, focusing on Fu Manchu, the Dragon Lady, Anna Mae Wong, Asian fetishism and Orientalism. It follows last week's episode where we spoke about the yellow peril, the construction of race, colouring our skin and anti-Asian immigration policies in the US and UK. I also wanted to highlight, because I didn't in the last episode, that the history of the yellow peril and the homogenization of East Asians was a Western construction and as much as Asians can unite through this joint oppression, I wanted to make a clear distinction between the historic and political and therefore social relationship between East Asian countries, particularly Japan, China, Korea and Vietnam. This is because my stance comes from a perspective of being Chinese diaspora and personally and directly less affected by our prior history. Being the younger generation, I feel a sense of unity with my fellow Asians and feel a sense of solidarity through understanding our homogenization and our treatment through the yellow peril. However, it's quite different amongst the older generation who have faced wartime trauma and political differences. So, that being said, today I'll be discussing the history of film, TV and mass media and the process of constructing demeaning and depersonalised images of us. I'll start by discussing Fu Manchu, a derogatory and racist caricature of the East Asian man created by Sax Fromer, a writer of white British and Irish descent. Fu Manchu was created as the archetype of an evil, villainous and typically Chinese man. His creation runs alongside the Yellow Peril ideology and was a vehicle to perpetuate the idea that Chinese and East Asian men were inherently bad and dangerous criminals, with predatory tendencies plotting to dominate the Western world. Sax Roma wrote his first book in 1913 and is noted for his literary success on account of his Dr Fu Manchu book series. This character was heavily popularised throughout the 1900s and became common in film, TV and plays. It's also worthwhile mentioning that this caricature was played exclusively by white men in yellow face. The role itself is obviously offensive, but the yellow face performances highlight the lack of worth and recognition held for the East Asian man, where they were deemed too insignificant to even play their own typecast. If you go onto IMDb or YouTube, you can see an array of images and trailers of white actors dressing up as these ridiculous and untrue depictions of the Chinese man. Honestly, when you see what Fu Manchu looks like, and imagine an audience 
enjoying these films, it's just baffling. How have we built a world of comedy based on the belittlement of other human beings and accept this as the norm? And I say have and not had because iterations of these lazy, unfunny characters still exist in all forms. The ingredients that make up Fu Manchu would first be his wispy, long, overgrown moustache, a menacing facial expression, yellow, sallow skin, and long, claw-like fingernails, dressed in appropriated Chinese costume. These films are set with Fu Manchu being the villain, involved in some sort of crime, and where he is obligatorily unattractive. Today, with the growing exception of a handful of films, this image has morphed into the idea that Chinese men are sexually unsuitable, weak and nerdy, even to the point where their masculinity is diminished through the widespread idea of them having an insufficiently sized package, branding them as a mainstream anti-sex symbol. Fu Manchu has played a significant role in building the Asian man's unpopular reputation. The first Fu Manchu film was The Mystery of Fu Manchu, written in 1923, with several similar titles that followed. The essence of Fu Manchu continued well into the mid to late 20th century, and over time, Saxe Roma became bored with his Fu Manchu novels. After all, he admitted to knowing very little about China, and based all of his ideas on the yellow peril stereotypes. Contrary to these unfounded beliefs, some historians have studied that the Chinese were actually extremely law-abiding. Later, Saxe Roma wrote a spin-off series, which evolved the narrative to focus on Fu Manchu's daughter. Although the mystery and fetishization of women had existed before the 1900s, the characterization through film helped spread the idea. It also influenced the stereotype of the Dragon Lady and the Lotus Flower. The Dragon Lady, like her father, is depicted as conniving, untrustworthy and power-hungry. But unlike Fu Manchu, the Dragon Lady is seen as sexually alluring with her mystical nature, in part relating to the Lotus Flower stereotype. It's typical that she's basically Fu Manchu, but sexualized with an additional layer of social deviance. Anna Mae Wong is famous for playing these roles in the early to mid-1900s, excluding the wartime period. She was an exception to the norm of yellow face, and we can explain this due to her pure talent and charm, where she presented herself as marketable and won over many directors and producers who couldn't deny her star quality. It was a case of being so incredible that her talent could momentarily eclipse her race, enough to be accepted. Anna's success may also reflect the structural acceptance of women as objects, and therefore making Anna palatable to play this sexualized, unchaste role, which is rooted in temptation, two unflattering qualities for women of that time. We also have to remember the impact of the Page Act of 1875, which I mentioned in episode two, where Chinese women were normalised as promiscuous and unchaste. Although she was popular, she still faced discrimination. During 1935, there was a cinematic remake of The Good Earth, a book based on a Chinese family of farmers struggling to live in China pre-World War I. 
This was the biggest film on China at the time, and as you can imagine, Anna was eager for the main role of Olan and did several screen tests for this role, but she was eventually passed up for a white German actor with less credentials. The producer had discounted her on the basis that she was not beautiful enough, but in reality, it's undoubtedly because she was not white enough. It's also outrageous to think that he said that she is not beautiful enough to play a Chinese character, but that a white woman was more suited. It was racist and illogical. You could say this was typical to the time, but yellow face is still common today, and replacing Asian characters with white actors is still common. Google has a list of them. There were also a set of internal film production rules, casually known as the Hayes Code, which prohibited the display of interracial, romantic or sexual encounters. So this is likely to be another unspoken reason for why they didn't cast Anime Wong. The directors offered Wong another role, to play a stereotype of a lotus-type concubine, to which she rejected. Anna Mae Wong is quoted as responding, I'll be glad to take the test, but I won't play the part. If you let me play Olan, I'll be very glad. But you're asking me, with Chinese blood, to do the only unsympathetic role in the picture, featuring an all-American cast portraying Chinese characters. Seriously, what a legend. That type of integrity and personal cost must have been tremendous. She's also quoted saying a couple years back that she left America for Europe because, quote, I was so tired of the parts I had to play. Why is it that the screen Chinese is nearly always the villain of the piece and so cruel a villain, murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass? We're not like that. How could we be with a civilization that is so many times older than the West? You can hear the frustration of her words and how the feeling of simply wanting to be seen as our authentic selves is a timeless human desire. Anna Mae Wong was iconic. She was absolutely fearless in her strength in speaking up against the discrimination East Asians faced in film. To understand the gravity of Anna's impact, we have to acknowledge how even today, women and people of colour are still shy and muted by the fear of Hollywood gatekeepers when it comes to speaking up about any forms of equality, let alone race. She lived in a time where you could die if you went against racial norms. Anna Mae Wong deserves so much credit for her outspoken personality and talent. She advocated representation and challenged the box that Hollywood forced her in. She was the first Asian American movie star and paved the way for future Asian representation and is a testament to perseverance and pushing boundaries, where for just one person, she made monumental ripples to culture. She was born in LA in 1905 and is reported to have skipped classes to hang out on film sets as an escape from bullying at school, which was mainly white until she transferred to a Chinese school. Spending so much time around the Hollywood sets, she was noticed and landed her first role at 14 in a film called The Red Lantern. And by 17, a few films later, she played the main role in The Toll of the Sea, 1922. Her role is reflected in her name, 
Lotus Flower. And even though it's easy to reduce her roles to a typecast in 2020, when you consider the context, it's pretty incredible that they cast her, especially in the time of the Yellow Peril and Yellow Face, where actors had their eyes taped back to look Asian. Seriously, it's monumental that they cast her. Her fame kept growing, and by 23, she went to Europe and starred in several films in Paris, Berlin and London. One of her most famous films was called Piccadilly, which was set in London in a renowned dance club where she begins as a kitchen porter and ends up being the main dance act. That's the essence of the film, but I'd recommend watching it as it's culturally historic and it's also interesting to put yourself in the seat of a 1929 audience. It's also so mesmerising to see someone Asian on screen at that time. Plus, the fashion does not disappoint. You can watch it on the BFI film player, unless you can find it somewhere else online, but this is where I watched it. Trust me, the costumes are immaculate. She talks of Europe and says, They were all so wonderful to me. You're admired abroad for your accomplishments and loved for yourself. That made me an individual instead of a symbol of my race. It's humbling to think that the human condition is eternal with one of the most basic human desires to be seen and seen beyond your complexion. But it's also frustrating to think that her words still resonate today. Wong also acted in plays and when sound was developed in films, she acted in French, German and English, which was her first language considering she was American born. Another famous film of hers is Shanghai Express, 1932, which has a 7.3 IMDb rating and is a film where she doesn't die for once, which is something she has commented on, saying, Pathetic dying seems to be the best thing I did. I mentioned how she was disregarded for the main part of The Good Earth in 1935, and at this point, she was so sick of Hollywood dictating the image of Asians that in 1936 she took control over her on-screen image and directed and starred in a film about China where she would have been around 31. The film was set in China where she talks about it being her first trip there and said that out of all the places she had been as a superstar it was the most meaningful to her. It reminds me of one of my first trips to China with my good friend Susie after our art foundation year, when we were 19, and I imagine Wong experiencing the same feeling I had of connecting to our roots. She spoke a different Chinese dialect to Mandarin and mentioned that when she went to Shanghai, she, quote, had the strange experience of talking to my own people through an interpreter. This is something I can totally relate to. Literally, the feels of not being able to speak to your own people. Over time, some parts slowly became more humanised when she returned to the US to sign with Paramount Movies, something she's reported to have been really proud of and would have never happened without her grit and previous roles. But by World War II, roles became scarce and she auctioned off her film costumes as part of the war effort. Around this time, she became depressed and began to be dependent on alcohol, which you can see characterised in the Netflix show... Hollywood. By the 50s and 60s, she restarted acting in TV shows. By the time she was set to be part of 
the first big Hollywood film with a heavily Asian-American cast, The Flower Drum Song, 1961. Tragically, she died at age 56. This is also a film I would highly recommend, and it's a film that came before The Joy Luck Club. It's a semi-musical, and the costumes are stunning. It's also so refreshing to see our people in these 50s-esque glamorous gowns. Whilst Asian representation has improved with films like Crazy Rich Asians and The Farewell, the sexualised ideas of the Asian woman and the undesirable, desexualized Asian man still persists and has lasting impacts. There have been studies on dating apps showing the difference between Asian American men and Asian American women, where white men will respond to Asian women, whereas white women will rarely respond to Asian men, which I find horrifying and think that the general public need to think for themselves more and that Asian men are hot. Obviously, this is me being emotionally offended when the real root of the problem is the power of representation because even Asian women were proven to be more likely to respond to a white man over an Asian man. This is clearly internalised racism. I would also add that I'm not immune to this. I have succumbed to internalised racism, particularly in my early ideas of dating. And the fourth episode of this podcast will be focused on internalised racism. So I'll leave it here for that episode. As for the sexualised image of Asian women, particularly by, but not exclusive to, white men, there is often a debate of the difference between having a type and having a fetish. So... What's the difference between having a fetish and having a type? You may or may not have heard the term yellow fever. It's a derogatory description to describe anyone with an Asian fetish. Like many racialized words, you are not in a position to use it unless you're part of the Asian community. It may be used casually amongst friends, but if you're using it seriously to describe your taste for a lotus flower or dragon lady, then that's offensive and you're 100% getting a side eye. Anyway, in short, yellow fever or having an Asian fetish is founded on the fantasy that Asian women are passive and submissive whilst being sexually available, yet innocent. A study shows that men who explained their Asian fetish all had the shared expectation that Asian women would participate in submissive sex, basically describing that they wanted an Asian woman as a compliant sex object without their own needs. This is also reflective of the patriarchy and the idea that a man's needs should be prioritised over a woman's and that women only exist to satisfy men. The stereotypes played on screen are key to depersonalising East Asian women as one-dimensional and why typically white men, but also men of colour, fetishise East Asian women, who themselves also internalise these ideas. Rina Sawayama has an apt music video which parodies these ideas around yellow fever and how Asian women are perceived as all the same and expected to have all the same interests. So, what is the difference between me liking someone tall or you liking someone with black hair or preferring someone with dreads to a fringe, or someone who likes curvaceous women to slim women, 
etc, etc. Our personal taste is all different, and we all have types of people we gravitate to and find attractive. The specific difference is that a fetish, in this case yellow fever, depersonalises us and creates the idea that we're interchangeable copies with no individual identity, once again degrading us and disregarding our individual thoughts and feelings. Liking someone based on their aesthetics is a personal choice. You're not reducing someone singularly to their appearance. And if you do, that tends to wear off and we seek the substance of someone's character. With Asian fetishization, it reduces a person to their race and the inaccurate expectations learnt from film and TV. These ideas may seem like another trivial byproduct of Asian inferiority, but it has its roots in a seriously oppressive history where the white colonial man is deemed as superior to the Asian woman. There are so many films depicting Asian women as exotic and innocent in need of rescuing from the West. The white saviour tends to become infatuated with this mystical beautiful creature and in the end, due to miscegenation laws which prohibited interracial romantic affiliations, the Asian woman is cast aside or ends up dying and also never allowed an on-screen kiss. Historically presenting Asian women as sexual foreign novelties creates dangerous real-life environments where men feel entitled to our bodies, thinking that we're open to sexual advances and powerless to resist and defend ourselves. The issues with this racial fetish intersect with issues of sexism where non-Asian women are also objectified. The key difference is the hierarchy of power and the way in which Asian women have been reduced specifically to the role of the lotus or dragon lady. A few other examples of a racial fetish would apply to black men and the expectation of their physical bodies and to have a hypermasculine temperament or black women represented as hypersexual, which is rooted in the dark history of colonial slavery with black women as property. Or Middle Eastern women also being seen as exotic when they're not portrayed as oppressed. The list goes on and there are layers to it often rooted in oppression or the reduction of a person's worth. This exoticism and mystification of the East was formed through colonialism. We discussed the yellow peril in episode two, which can be seen as related to Orientalism. Edward Said, the pioneer of post-colonial studies, whom I mentioned in episode one, coined the term Orientalism which is also the title of his most famous book, written in 1978. The book was set on the argument that American and Western scholars were intentionally distorting the depiction of the Far and Middle East, constructing false stereotypes. He made a point that these scholars had internal biases and lacked the cultural experience to accept and understand the customs of the East, which I would call the foreign gaze, where one experiences a foreign place as a fascinated tourist and lacks a deeper understanding of the culture. Western scholars base their own ideas on their own measures of normality and assessed the East against their self-appointed superior values as opposed to accepting the East as separate and different or equal.
I think at a base level, it's something we all do. And until we make an active effort to be more open-minded and to consider other avenues to ways of life other than our own, we will continue these ideas of superiority and inferiority at every level of life. However, Orientalism is much more dangerous as it highlights that these scholars of the colonial period as trusted members of society with authority and the power to influence and cement ideas within wider culture had ties to the imperialist societies and therefore had inherently deceitful agendas to other the East and manipulate the worldview of different civilizations. It further justified the invasions of the East and encouraged the white saviour complex where the West concealed their motives for invasion as salvation. Their motivation was to exploit Eastern labour and we can see this throughout history. For example, with the people of China and India. Edward Said stated that these ideas had manifested in different forms in the post-colonial era, particularly perpetuated by America as a rising superpower. A lot of Said's work discussed the portrayal of the Middle East and the Muslim religion. However, it can be applied to East Asia in that it argues that the academic world had colluded with political systems of power to convey the West as superior. He states that degrading stereotypes were the main method of convincing societies of cultural divide and differences in sophistication. Through creating an other and enemy of Asian people, this inferiority structure maintained the West and Britain's powerful image. Understanding that stereotypes exist and impact our way of thinking, how do our brains respond to stereotypes and contribute to racist or discriminatory thinking? Pragya Agarwal's book, Sway, unpacks our unconscious biases and provides a plethora of case studies which show the impact of stereotypes on society. There were a few key points and concepts which stood out to me. Agarwal discusses our gut instincts, writes about the wiring of our brains and how it contributes to our unconscious biases, our in-group and out-group mindset and the concept of positive stereotypes. She explains how our gut instinct is the result of our brains automatically processing information around us where our senses take in 11 million bits of information per second, but can only consciously process about 50 bits of those information. That's 50 bits of the 11 million bits of information we receive per second. Our brains create shortcuts to reduce this information overload and use the accumulation of our past experiences to match and assign meaning to what is in front of us. It's a very helpful evolutionary survival technique in saving our processing power and making quick decisions. However, when it comes to society in the 21st century, these cognitive functions can have its drawbacks. The patterns and associations that our brains make, combined with the negative information and stereotypes we receive all around us about different cultures and races, can be detrimental to our society. There are two factors which influence how we arrive at our gut instincts and our thoughts. Our emotions and our rationale. The dual processing theory in psychology states that 
Process one uses emotional responses, which are unconscious and automatic, whereas process two is based on a rational and conscious process. Applying logic and critical thinking takes more time and energy, so we often fall back on process one. Our emotions are subjective and tend to be heightened under exhaustion or pressure, making process one less reliable than process two, which relies more on objectivity. Relying on our automatic emotional responses creates more unfounded judgments, which in turn create a distorted worldview. Although it is normal to fall back on these biological processes, we have the brain power and the capacity to slow our thoughts down and assess our judgments to combat our biases. These biases are not built in isolation and are very much affected by our social norms and desire to fit in. There are three types of conformity that I wanted to share from Agarwal's book. The first being compliance, a surface level conformity where an individual will temporarily change their views for the purpose of public perception whilst maintaining their private thoughts and beliefs. This is an informational conformity where an individual may be convinced by another person's point of view or where collective ideas cause them to question their own judgment. There is also identification, the type of conformity where we temporarily change our public and private views to be accepted by the majority group. It is a type of normative conformity which seeks to avoid social ostracization or social punishment. The third type, which has a longer term impact, is internalization, where a person's view evolves along with cultural or social shifts in ideas. So if the collective view is that immigrants are bad, then this has a negative effect on the targeted groups. In summary, the three types of conformity are compliance, identification and internalization. A well-known study in 1955 by Solomon H tests these concepts of human conformity and found that people were willing to ignore the truth and opted to support false information in order to conform to a group setting. This being said, the study also showed the impact of unification where conformity by the odd one out in the experiment would be less likely to conform if they had a partner in the trial. So the study reflects the power in numbers, which is key to overcoming social pressure through resisting as an opposing force. We can see the importance as social creatures to be part of a pack. The social effects of conformity is known as herd mentality. It is fundamental to human behavior and a primal hardwiring that we all have. A lot of our gut instincts, where we feel like we just know things, can lead to prejudice, especially when our emotional processing system is in play. However, our gut instinct, as an accumulation of our past, can evolve with the more experiences that we gain. This means that our perspectives and judgments can expand over time and influence what we feel as our gut instincts. Social norms reflect this group conformity and therefore that which deviates is deemed as abnormal and is stigmatised as socially unacceptable.
Our identity and ideas are formed on the basis of what pack, herd or group you conform to. However, depending on our culture or the time we live in, the window of normality can and does shift. This is important to remember as it avoids us falling into the trap of feeling powerless. The basic idea of our in-group and out-group mentality can be applied to all aspects of life, but for the relevance of this episode, I'll focus on race and cultural identity. Two studies stood out to me in Pragya's book. One highlighted that our levels of empathy differ depending on one's race, where we feel more empathy towards those who look more like ourselves and therefore those who are of the same race as us. This has detrimental impacts, say when we're being treated in a hospital and our race does not reflect the majority of the doctors or nurses. It can lead to unequal treatment and gives good reason for why we need diversity in all sectors, especially healthcare. The second was on positive stereotypes, such as the model minority myth surrounding Asians. It is the exceptionally high expectation of all Asians to be intelligent and extremely hardworking, which is shown to actually have a negative impact where top universities in America apply an Asian tax where Asians have to achieve an almost perfect GPA in comparison to other races where the entry requirements and GPA is a lot lower. It reflects how all stereotypes, even positive ones, are bad and have a negative impact on homogenising and depersonalising a group. A lot of our responses are evolutionary mechanisms and are often rooted in our basic needs of staying safe, competing for limited resources and mates, and seeking self-preservation. This forms in-groups and out-groups, where out-groups are acknowledged as threats to these needs. This is how prejudice is formed, where our evolutionary need to calculate a person's threat or safety towards us does not serve our 21st century society when it comes to us seeking racial cohesion. There are biases that we carry in all forms, from judging people on race, gender, age, sexuality, height, looks, body size, physical capabilities, and the list goes on. When it comes to interacting with people and making an effort to move away from reductive and inhumane ideas, it all comes down to us, questioning the information that we take in and the ideas that we conform to. Our biases are valid, but can also perpetuate stereotypes and can hinder the opportunity to create human connections with different types of people. At the end of the day, you can only represent yourself. If you happen to align with the stereotype or not, that is secondary, as changing yourself by rejecting or conforming to an idea is still a response to letting these stereotypes influence who you are. So my take on combating stereotypes is trying to be yourself, trying to be more open-minded and breaking your own preconceptions and try to give people the space to be themselves around you and to expand our in-groups 
by befriending all types of people. What do you think? How do you think we can combat stereotypes? In this episode, we covered Fu Manchu, The Dragon Lady, Anna Mae Wong, fetishization, Orientalism, and the impact of our biases perpetuating stereotypes. I hope that this episode was insightful, and if it was, leave a comment. Like and share this episode with your friends and family. Let's break out echo chambers and continue to converse about cultural identity, race and representation. Follow Foreign Concepts on Instagram, where I post more content on these topics. The next episode is on internalised racism, dating and othering our own people. Till next time, mags.